from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Women in Climate Change, Can the Land of Lincoln Be the First LinkedIn State, A Big Year for Investor Activism, and a talk with the new CEO of Grist. I wish I had a pithy line worthy of Grist's great snarky humor, but I don't. This week on 350. It's March 17th, 2017. Happy St. Patrick's Day for those who participate in the wearing of the green. We'll focus on the being of the green. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. And with me is senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Hello. How's it going? It's going great. Just another beautiful day in paradise here. I know on the East Coast they don't think that, but here on the West Coast it's... The rain's gone, at least for the moment. It's bright and sunny in 70s, and oh, what a glorious feeling. And you just got back from the happiest place on Earth, right? Uh, One of them, yeah. I I was in Orlando this week, and uh, uh, I was in Anaheim last week. And know before you think that I have a thing going on with someone named Mickey. That's just a coincidence. I was at two different conferences that happened to be in the same uh, location as the two Disney resorts. Uh, This week, it was a conference called The Granger Show, uh, put on by a company that uh, people in business know, most IP people know called W.W. Granger, or a, a Midwest Illinois company, uh, focusing on industrial supply distribution. What that means is that anything in a warehouse or logistics facility from safety gloves to ladders to shelving and bins and even conveyor belts uh, and many, many, many other things. They're a big catalog company that sells all of that stuff. And they bring together their customers, their vendors, and their employees to about 13,000 of them every year at the Orlando Convention Center to look at things and uh, a lot of the issues and trends going on out there. And one of them they want to talk about was sustainability. What particularly are they interested in? Well, I think they're interested in the big view, which is often what I do when I give these kinds of speeches and sort of looking at what's going on out there and what the driving forces are and is it making a difference and some of the big interesting trends that leave me optimistic, like the circular economy and uh, the the, uh, convergence of technologies that we talk about at Verge and so many other other things that go beyond the typical greening of business that really have transformative potential. So it's really kind of a forward-looking opportunity, opportunistic uh, view of the corporate sustainability world and and all the things it's connected to. So that's, you know, a lot of what I do when I speak. And this was a great opportunity to do that in front of a bunch of companies. It's interesting when you think about some of these big industrial companies, especially when it comes to things like the circular economy that you mentioned, um, how much do you really get the vibe that sustainability is or isn't a part of the the day-to-day conversation for these guys? Well, keep in mind that this was about uh, several thousand of their customers, which are just pretty much every kind of business from big industrial uh, companies to, uh, you know, service sector companies. Um, And, you know, as we know well, they're all thinking about this stuff and they're all trying to get their arms around it. they're all trying to understand where it's going. I talked to Kevin Hartler, who's a senior director of services and solutions development at WW Granger. He was kind of my host there for the day and asked him sort of to talk about that question, Lauren, what is the vibe, what's going on in his customers' uh, uh, mindsets around sustainability? And here's a little of what he had to say. So Kevin, maybe start by telling a little bit about what's the conversation around sustainability that you've been hearing among Granger customers? You know, it's interesting because we just have completed our 2017 uh, Granger show, and we're noticing a growing trend among our customers regarding sustainability. Uh, they're asking us about our practices in the environmental stewardship, safety, and community, but they want to know how Granger can actually help them meet the sustainability goals that they might have in their businesses, and we're looking for ways to, to help them through our supply chain and even the uh, environmentally preferable product offerings that we, we put together. We release a sustainability report annually uh, to provide our customers with information that they're asking for and, and possibly need. We received an A-minus two years in a row uh, on this report. It's a CDP climate change response, 
which is uh, formerly known as a carbon disclosure project. And we do this because we work with a, a third-party research firm. We think it's really important to ensure you know, our green product offering aligns with the needs of our, of our customers. So, so the customer needs you're talking about are primarily around products, or are they around other things? Are they asking for other things? No, they're asking for other things. They're certainly interested in the products we have because we have uh, you know millions of products in our, our catalog and in our distribution. But they're also asking about how we are actually operating uh, in a sustainable way too. And they want to learn from the things that we're doing either in, in our supply chain or, or definitely through our product offerings. But they also want to make sure that we're, um, we kind of practice, you know, what we're trying to offer our customers too in the way that we operate and, and you know, again, just provide our products. Have you seen any changes in how uh, or what customers are asking from you? Well, we're, we're definitely seeing changes. I think it's, it's definitely increasing. Um, customers are giving us feedback that this topic is, is important to them. Um, I think that's was something we re, we heard about um, in the last year or so. And we since put together a seminar, which you, you're certainly aware of in the 2017 Granger show about sustainability. Um, but the one thing I think is interesting is uh, so customers are defining it differently. So sustainability varies in the way customers see it. It's sometimes it is a way that we see or hear that they operate, but then other times it's a, probably more of a short term, uh, solution or answer because they're looking at energy or water and things like that. Uh, but overall, we're seeing the source of sustainability questions and requests change. Um, you know, we have discussions with uh, about sustainability practices um, at higher levels, but now we're actually seeing it coming from more of the customer's procurement team um, and more frequent. Our customers are also setting and tracking goals around sustainability, and we're getting involved with them to do that. And they're looking for people to partner to help them achieve that that success. Um, but, you know, the requests have also probably become more sophisticated before I would say customers were asking us for maybe safety data, overall safety data. But now they're trying to ask us for requests around um, our ergonomic programs at our distribution centers. And again, that's evidence of they want to see what we're doing. Maybe there is opportunities to share in those learnings back and forth to help. I think everybody, including our, you know, what we do at Granger and what our customers do and how we could do it better around sustainable operations. Do you have any sense what's driving this? Is it a matter of doing the right thing, or is this pure dollars and cents? What's going on? I think, yeah, I think it's combinations. I don't think it's probably one, you know, all by itself, but we definitely see um, our customers are looking to save money, operate smartly, and even reduce risk of supply chain. You know, those are probably key drivers. Um, our customers also realize sustainability isn't just about doing the right thing. There's a direct link between sustainable practices and cost savings. You know, we use examples in our business to try to talk through some of these things. And sometimes we use LED light bulbs as an example. You know, although all these light bulbs are, are energy efficient and good for the environment, they also outlast the standard light bulb, which then can cut down facilities replacement cadence and save on, um, obviously, electricity bills. When we're talking about doing the right thing and saving money, it turns, to be, turns out to be a win-win situation. So our customers are certainly understanding the impact on the environment um, may, may not only affect their suppliers, but their supplier suppliers, which is a pretty interesting uh, concept, too. So by us investing in sustainability, we're signaling to the value uh, chain that we're thinking about our business for the long term. Uh, Range has been around for 90 years and we certainly plan to be around for a lot longer and, and much longer than that. So we're certainly trying to, to be a good steward and partner to our customers when they are interested in thinking about sustainability, either by showing them what we're doing or helping them uh, through our supply chain and through our products. Great. Well, thanks for uh, making sustainability a part of uh, the Granger Show this year, and thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed my time there. Well, i got to tell you, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule and coming to our show and seeing the, the trade show floor and all the products and suppliers and people that we represent. It's eye-opening because I think uh, a lot of companies aren't always given a chance to see the, the breadth and depth of, of companies and organizations. So for you to come here was a, a great statement. We were happy to have you, and it was a great seminar. So thank you very much. All right. Well, good stuff from a busy week. Let's go ahead and jump right into the Week in Review. So we started off the week with a great piece from our senior writer, Heather Clancy, 
looking at not just smart cities, but the issue of smart states. Her piece was called The First Smart State, The Quest to Link Up the Land of Lincoln. For those who might need to brush up on their history, Illinois was the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. And it's also now in the throes of a really interesting effort to become the first smart state, focusing on things like the Internet of Things, smart lighting, um, really sort of aggressively looking to modernize the infrastructure throughout the state. Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, development. And and the the first of of a lot of states that are moving in this direction. And I think one of the sort of fun things here is that every state is going to make some claims on being the first or the most or the bestest wired, smartest, you know, Internet of Things kind of state. Um, But the point is here is that I think the states understand that both from their own governmental operation and just from the the well-being and productivity uh, of their citizens, not to mention the ability to attract uh, companies and create new job opportunities, that all of these trends around data in the Internet of Things and smart buildings, smart vehicles, frankly, the verge world that we talk about uh, is really the way to go. And, and uh, Illinois seems to be one of the first up here. Yes. And we've we've covered smart cities a little bit before, as I mentioned. I know Chicago is, is trying to definitely insert themselves into that conversation. And I think last year I actually wrote a piece on the first smart nation, really, in this case, a city state with Singapore. So like you said, definitely some people r- lying rival claims to some of this stuff. But when it comes to all the companies that are involved in this space, you've got everyone from offshoots of Google to big players like IBM and Cisco um, and a whole range of startups working in green building and and energy and automation. Um, So I think it's a really interesting space to watch, especially when you start thinking about things like Heather mentioned at the bottom of this piece in the city of Austin, where mayors are sort of vying to become hubs for R&D on things like driverless cars. Yeah. And I think it's important to sort of inventory. What does it mean to be a smart state? So that some of the things that Illinois has been looking at is, first of all, adding sensors and other Internet of Things technologies to buildings and streetlights, uh, creating uh, mobile apps and services that allow people to understand what's going on and and how to interact with the city and its infrastructure, uh, establishing volume discounts for a range of technologies and cloud services, I guess, for both businesses and, and, and the city itself, or the city and state governments. Uh, embracing standard policies for smart city approaches, so so not every city is is a one-off. They're actually starting to develop some standard approaches and maybe some economies of scale, and then creating centers of excellence for various technologies like the Internet, Internet of Things, like the blockchain, uh, which is something we've talked about and we'll continue talking about um, around. Uh, in fact, there's a great article uh, recent, this week, I think, in the New York Times about how uh, citizens are starting to trade energy among themselves using blockchain technology. Um, so this is really a great look at sort of the range of things that a city or in this case a state can do. There's one other aspect of this that I think is worth noting. This this is out of an article uh, published uh, earlier this week on uh, Bloomberg called Cities Shop for $10 billion of electric cars to defy Trump. And it's about how Los Angeles, New York, and, and about 30 cities altogether are seeking to buy up to 114,000 vehicles. Uh, and I think that's particularly significant in light of the fact that this week, uh, President uh, re-examined, shall we say, the uh, Obama fuel economy standards. I basically withdrew f- from those. Um, and, and this is really, you know, how much of this is really a direct political statement or or simply uh, a convenient time to be making purchases that they've been looking at anyway. I think this is really an interesting role for uh, governments, for city governments, and potentially, uh, you know, a state government. Uh, there's certainly enough blue states that seem to be wanting wanting to take an oppositional position to uh, you know to Trump policies. Uh, but really trying to ramp up electric car purchases, 114,000 is, you know, given the number of, of vehicles already on the road, that's a significant number because it's still a pretty small population of, of electric vehicles. So this this is another piece of this uh, because in order to 
to operate these, you'll need you know, the smart systems of charging stations and the, the interconnection to the grid and a lot of other things that start to come when you build out an EV network. So that's another sort of unexpected piece of what it means to be a smart city or smart state these days. Mm -hmm. And another smart bet is that this year is going to be a busy year for investor activism. Our reporter Keith Larson took a look at that issue this week based on As You So's annual proxy review, which found that shareholder resolutions specifically related to social and environmental issues have increased to 430 resolutions this year, up from 370 last year. Um, so what is a proxy resolution <laughs> in this case, according to the report? We're talking about investors who file resolutions related to climate change um, with sort of political activity or an activist investor mentality sort of at work. Uh, this is an interesting space that I know we've looked at for a number of years, Joel. Right. So shareholder resolutions on social and environmental issues aren't new. Uh, but as, as you so points out, they, they have been growing. Um, and they looked at uh, what's going to be happening in 2017. Uh, and they seeing that, that, first of all, environmental policies are about 25, 26% of the proposals that will be filed and uh, corporate disclosures related to political activity are 21%. And then there's a bunch related to human rights, uh, sustainability programs, which is kind of a catch-all and diversity. Those, those are the top five. Um, you know, the point of these is not necessarily that they're going to pass, although that's always the hope, but usually to get you know, five or ten or percent is is a significant number, and often what happens with these these shareholder activist groups is that by bringing these proposals to management and forcing them to put them in front of of shareholders by you know leveraging the rules of of the of the corporate charter. It opens up a conversation between the shareholder activists and the management or the board to to look at some of these issues. And often a lot of these are withdrawn because the management agrees to do something. And so this, this is a very interesting tool that's been used for a long time and, and continues to be used. One of the interesting findings here, of, as you so report, is that um, – I think it's kind of interesting is that the resolution specifically dealing with climate change actually dropped somewhat from compared to 2016 from 94 last year to 82 this year. Um, and I'm not sure the significance and it doesn't really say, although it does note that climate change resolutions often show up as part of other proposals, including sustainability reporting, executive compensation and board oversight and composition. By the way, that those last things I think are interesting that some of these resolutions are asking to tie executive compensation to a company's environmental and sustainability uh, commitments and performance and to provide board oversight uh, and make sure that the composition of the board and the board committees reflect the growing concern over things like climate risk. So the, the, this is a little microcosm into sort of the, the deeper world of, of how companies are being asked in this case, by their shareholders to, to take a look at uh, and think more more seriously and disclose uh, more uh, more actively about you know, some of the things that are of concern to to activists. And uh, you know, of course, they list uh, Keith lists some of the companies that are being targets, and as you, as you would expect, a lot of them are big energy companies like DTE, Duke Energy, Excel, and AES. But they really range across a whole wide range of, of companies. Mm -hmm. Another issue that Keith pointed to was uh, packing materials, obviously sort of a perennial issue. So this year, as you so submitted proposals for Amazon, Target and McDonald's dealing with sort of foam and the different materials that these these companies use. Um, so like you said, can can span the gamut, but something to, to keep an eye on to see when things do or don't really gain traction in the investor world. Well, speaking of materials and the chemistry behind them, that brings us to a piece that uh, Barbara Grady wrote, senior writer, uh, about uh, the efforts by a number of chemical companies, Dow, BASF, Eastman among them, to to be much more proactive in, in how they're looking at developing uh, safer chemicals, and particularly in light of the Chemical Act. Uh, Chemical Safety Act that was passed, uh, I guess, last year, sort of the re revision of, of TOSCA, the uh, 
Toxic Substance Control Act. That's a federal law. And uh, interesting things going on in terms of how companies are prioritizing the uh, R&D that's driving the introduction of new and in many cases more naturally derived additives and materials that are being asked for by companies like Johnson & Johnson, Levi Strauss, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, uh, that are looking to, to find ways to minimize, if not eliminate, a lot of the toxic or you know, complicated, you know, problematic ingredients of, their, of the products that they're selling. Mm-hmm. Our friends at True Cost estimate that environmentally safe chemicals uh, were around an $11 billion market in 2015 and could grow nearly tenfold by 2020 to be a $100 billion market. And that's because of this desire specifically to weed out chemicals that are suspected to disrupt human reproductive systems. Obviously, carcinogens are a big perennial concern. So in terms of who is looking to act on that, you've got Dow, BASF, Eastman Chemical, all prioritizing uh, investigation into things like elastomers and polyophilin elastomers and all kinds of fun scientific words, Um, but also consumer goods companies like Johnson & Johnson, Levi's, Unilever, Procter & Gamble. Um, So this is another one that's sort of hitting companies in in supply chains across industries. Yeah, my favorite was one that uh, Barbara mentioned, which is uh, how Dow worked with uh, one of its customers, the lovely name of Munchkin Baby Products. I I love that. (laughs) Munchkin Baby Products, uh, which, which, as you could imagine, wanted to eliminate uh, uh, BPAs, uh, bisphenol A, which is uh, 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 carcinogen and I think mutagen. along with phthalates. These are both problematic uh, materials that have been uh, linked very strongly to human health problems that are in materials coming from its supply chains. And then they're now using a new line of chemicals called Infuse that Dow, um, Dow is making. So uh, polyolefin technology to replace uh, bisphenol A and, and a number of other things around uh, epoxy coatings that are water-based and a whole range of really interesting innovations that are that are coming uh, from market demand. And I think that's the important point here is that is that consumer concern uh, based on a lot of commitments like the one that uh, Target, the, the department store, uh, made recently to be much more uh, to disclose the ingredients of a, of a lot of its uh, personal care products. Um, that they just don't want to a lot of nasty showing up in those products when they do start to disclose them, and so they're making uh, proactive efforts to work with their chemical suppliers to find all, uh, non-toxic, safer alternatives. It's it's pretty encouraging. Yeah, and obviously a lot of this is an outgrowth of efforts like restricted substances lists that big companies have given out to suppliers, sort of naming chemicals that they won't permit in their products or manufacturing processes. But I also did want to just mention quickly um, a column we had this week also from our Right Chemistry contributors. This one was written by Laura Hoach with the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council. And they're an interesting group. It's sort of a business-to-business network that brings together companies and other organizations looking at supply chains and accelerating green chemistry innovation. Um, And in their case, they have a GC3 green and bio-based chemistry startup network, say that three times fast, (laughs) that looks to to really get uh, smaller players into this space. So obviously, you've got big companies looking to to refine their production processes, but this is also looking at sort of the bottom-up innovation um, from smaller teams spinning out of laboratories or whatever you have it. Lots more of this green or at least greener chemistry coming out of the lab, so stay tuned. So I don't think there's any listeners of this podcast who aren't familiar, maybe even intimately familiar with the website called Grist. Grist.org has been around since the late 90s, and it's really, uh, many for many people, the go-to uh, news and information resource on uh, pretty much the whole range of environmental issues. And it's got this great humor, uh, this great snarky approach, uh, a way with words that um, I, as a wordy guy, love. And I think a lot of other people do too. And, and, and in fact, it's been uh, that whole approach. It's, it's, it's 
motto, its old original motto, a beacon in the smog, I think is what it was, uh, is it sort of exemplifies how it's been, um, you know, trying to infuse at least a little bit of light touch, a little bit of humor into what is obviously a very serious and deadly subject. So why are we talking about Grist today? Well, Grist has a new CEO. In fact, it's the first CEO since the uh, it's founded uh, by its 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 previous CEO Chip Giller, himself a environmental journalist. Chip is is staying with the organization. Is going to be taking on some special projects, and um, I had a chance to catch up with Brady Walkinshaw, the new CEO, and I wanted to learn a little bit about what's going on there and a little about Brady and just to hear what he had to say uh, about the future of Grist. So here's that conversation. So Brady, first of all, welcome to Grist. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm really excited to, to be here. And it's, it's a, an, a, an exciting kind of fusion of my, of my passions and my, different parts of my career. What did you see as the, the big opportunity there for you and for Grist for, to come on board? Well, I mean, I, I've, as, you, as you may know, I, mean, I, was, I worked a lot in local politics for the last several years up here in Washington State and uh, was a state legislator and uh, spent so several years before that. Actually, my background is in food and agriculture. I grew up, my dad uh, worked in vegetable farming, organic vegetable farming. My mom's a public school teacher. He was an agricultural educator. So I grew up in, in pretty rural Washington State. Uh, and found my way into a real passion around food and sustainability. Um, worked at the Gates Foundation for many years on food issues, uh, and then found my way into politics. And one of the, one of the things that really excites me about Grist is that looking at the media today, whether, whether you're thinking coming out of the presidential election, whether you're thinking about where we are, um, with the environmental movement today, uh, I just think it's a really exciting time at this intersection between technology, uh, the environment uh, and independent journalism. So, how did the 2016 election? Do you think it? You weren't at Grist then yet, but how do you think that affected or changed the the Grist playbook? Well, you know, it was interesting because we were having this conversation with our board uh, in 2016 around a new strategy and and looking at a CEO transition of having you know Chip Giller who started us our organization back in 1999 and him transitioning now to a different exciting role within the organization. And, um, and then the election came around. Um, and, you know, I think that shook up a lot of the, the paradigm and kind of the strategic thinking that we, that we had here at Grist. And, and I think there are, there are kind of two important pivots for us uh, going forward. One is that uh, we as an organization uh, are, are, I think, excited to focus more on on kind of the solutions journalism space. So our, our editorial team, which is headed up by Scott Dodd, who's based in New York, um, is going to be focusing more on solutions journalism. And, and that's to say that a lot of the exciting innovation in the areas that we cover, um, whether it's cities or whether it's our food system or whether it's clean energy or whether it's environmental justice, that, that we might not be seeing a lot of leadership from the federal government <laughs> over the next uh, four years on, on things like clean water and clean air. Um, but that there are really important innovations happening locally, um, that there are a lot of important movements out there. There's a lot of important efforts having happening globally with countries like China taking the lead, um, you know, and issues around Paris and, and looking at carbon caps and clean energy transitions. So I, I think you'll see part of Grist really focusing on this solutions journalism space. So doing more in-depth reporting, capturing progress. Um, and at the same time, I think doing what we have been doing, which is, you know, keeping kind of our irreverent, our irreverent tone, but, but kind of coupling that with some more in-depth substantive reporting on, on issues from, we just did a piece that got picked up in several outlets around the NOAA cuts to programs like Sea Grant, the proposed cuts to, you know, Sea Grant and the satellite monitoring programs to, to other issues. So that's an important pivot for us. Um, and the second I can talk about a little more is the, the kind of work that Chip is going to be leading uh, within the organization, which is actually kind of outside of journalism. So Chip Geller is your uh, founder and until now, uh, CEO in a position that you've taken over. So what's Chip going to be up to? Yeah, so Chip's going to be kind of, we're, we're starting a new product here at Grist. We're going to be talking about how we can bring together kind of convenings of of environmental leaders and, and people who've been uh, maybe next generation leaders in, in different areas of the environmental space um, and having kind of focused conversations and convenings 
uh, that can hopefully lead to action and to bring together kind of unlikely partnerships uh, and look at how it is that we can build in the network that we've built up at Grist over the last 18 years um, to, to facilitate some of these some of these connections. So we will be hopefully doing our first one in May um, and starting to look at, at different ways we can build on. We have this initiative called the Grist 50 which spotlights, you know, 50 people who we see as kind of next generation leaders in the environmental movement um, from business to food, to, you know, social activism, uh, but bringing a lot of these people together to, to make that something that's more practical that can, that can lead to kind of deepening our impact. Yeah. How do you describe the Grist audience? And, and I'm asking in the context of how do you see as you get into these great projects and continue the, the work you've been doing for 18 years, that we're not just talking to the choir. You know, that's I could not agree more with that question. I mean, I that's a personal priority for me. I mean, I'm someone who grew up in a deeply, deeply conservative rural area in Washington State. Um, I, I then went on to represent the most <laughs> liberal progressive district in Washington State. Uh, so I often think a lot about how, uh, especially today, how how media doesn't kind of further polarize us, but that, that media on an issue like climate and environmental issues and clean energy can also find ways to, um, I, I would say, extend our audience and build bridges uh, to groups that, that may not be our readers today. And, you know, our, our vision statement for Grist has been over the last kind of year or two, it's become this idea that we're working toward um, a planet that doesn't burn and a future that doesn't suck. And that that has been that has been kind of the, the vision that you'll you'll start to hear from us. Um, but when you think about ways that we can kind of extend that audience, um, I was just talking to our one of our senior food editors this morning, and we were talking about ways that you know maybe you facilitate conversations in on our editorial pages um, between between kind of rural farmers who are explaining why it is they're using synthetic fertilizers. And also finding ways that those same groups can maybe hear um, audiences in urban areas who are talking about um, demand for, for for different types of food crops. So I, I'm excited about that, and I think it's something that that is kind of incumbent on many of us in journalism, um, and I think specifically something that, that we'll be thinking about at Grist. Yeah, I was struck by that tagline: the uh, the planet that doesn't burn, the future that doesn't suck. I mean, it's it's classically uh, Grist. Gristonian, uh, cheeky, uh, and I like it. It's also kind of negative. I mean, you know, part of part of the challenge I think of this movement has always been, well, tell us what you're for, and what's what's the uh, story that you want to tell if we get things right. Uh, so, are you concerned about the future that doesn't stuck, or is it just sort of the nice uh, glib and snarky way that you like to talk? <laughs> good, good question. I mean. I think we, I think we got there and I, I was, you know, I'm coming on as, as a lot of those conversations have happened here, but I think the way we got there, uh, is that, uh, you know, a lot of us have, have said the kind of positive reverse of that, which is we want a future that is more just and more sustainable, right? That we're working toward a more just, sustainable future. Um, and a lot of organizations, a lot of us have kind of said those words before, which, you know, we wholeheartedly support and agree with, but, we thought it would be it would be nice to kind of put up the counterfactual of that, which is that we're we're also working to avert something that could be really bad. Um, we're working to avert um, our our climate and our, our our planet continuing to go down this path if we don't take action on climate change at a real macro scale. Um, and and when we say future that doesn't suck, I mean I think a big part of that for us is environmental justice that we're thinking about. You know, not only do we do we create that transition to a you know a clean energy economy and cap carbon emissions and so forth, um, you know, and fight back against ocean acidification, but that we also are doing that in a way that's equitable um, and and just for the future. And we just brought on a new uh, editor for environmental justice, uh, someone who's been at the Nation in Al Jazeera, a guy named Nikhil Swaminathan, who's based down in the Bay Area. Um, so he'll be heading up our environmental justice desk um, and have some other kind of developments on the way in that area. All the more reason since the EPA just killed their environmental justice department. Um, so, yep. so Gris is 18 years old now, uh, founded in 1999. I, I can't help but but just think of the parallels. Uh, Green Business uh, founded in 1999 too, at least as the the, the website that 
became the company that we now are. And, um, you know, sort of at that point where at least, you know, we're old enough to drink, I guess, and uh, <laughs> but old enough to start to shape a future and sort of start to see what we want to be when we grow up. I'm wondering how you feel about the maturity, you know, where you are at Grist in terms of, of what you want to be. Are you there? Is this what is this what this new uh, you as CEO and this new generation of, of projects is all about? I, I, you know, I, that, that same metaphor of, you know, being 18 years old, you know, graduating from adolescence and so forth. Uh, our, our founder, Chip Giller, made that, that same, a similar point uh, with, with my coming on board. I, I, I believe that there is a, a real sizable opportunity here for us to, to take this moment and uh, kind of build on it and build this legacy, but, but also grow. And I, I think if we, if we look at historically our reach into a, a, a very, you know, influential, important, but fairly focused environmental audience. Um, I, I believe there's this, a chance here to, to broaden that reach um, beyond, beyond, I think, maybe where we've historically been um, and, and look at different opportunities like the one that, that, that we'll be looking at around these convenings to kind of drive impact um, with a, with a type of urgency by, by being a little bit more applied than, than just writing stories, but looking at how we can bring those people creating change together uh, in in creative ways, and that can can kind of advance impact. So I I see us I see I see us um, expanding and growing in some exciting ways as we as we bring in more support. But um, it's just an important time for independent media. Yeah, that it is, and uh, I'd encourage. Um, the Green Biz audience to do what I did, which is be a monthly contributor to Grist. It's such a great publication and and a valuable contributor to all this. So, Brady, uh, welcome again, and thanks. It's great to talk to you. I look forward to uh, keeping in touch. Well, Joel, yeah, thanks so much, and I, yeah, thanks for the leadership at Green Biz, and I, I'm excited to be part of the community. This week in New York, an event took place called Women for Climate uh, that brought together a number of the uh, women leaders from around the world who were instrumental in forging and now implementing the Paris Agreement that was uh, created at COP21 in 2015. And attending that event was our very own senior writer and interim managing editor, Heather Clancy. Heather, tell us about this event and, frankly, why we need a climate conference for women. Hey there, Joel. Thanks for uh, inviting me to talk about this. It was a great event, actually, at Columbia University, and um, it was brought together by the uh, C40 Cities group. Um, the idea is that women in, in urban climates are disproportionately affected by climate change, by global warming, by rising waters, by food shortages, and so forth, and that they should be disproportionately proactive in dealing with this. So the, the, the conference really, there was some really high powered people there. Um, the mayor of Paris, uh, the mayor of Caracas, Mexico city, um, and, and, and different places around the world, Dur uh, you know, South Africa, et cetera. And basically what they believe that, that women should do and female leaders is, uh, really fight against fight against sort of the 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 national populism right that might be preventing stuff at the federal level depending it doesn't matter if you're in the US or in other countries but you know they believe that women should speak up more strongly about about what's going on and take action and there was one uh, decidedly non-female a well-known <laughs> mayor there as well yes there was um, a big proponent of this is um, the ex-mayor of of New York City Michael Bloomberg and he's he dropped by to to really praise um, what's going on, this this group of women, um, there's about 12 of them actually officially on the panel, um, and you know, I, I'll, I'll he spoke really of the need to take pro prophylactic prophylactic measures, if you will, right? Why are we sitting around waiting um, for things to happen? Why are we waiting for health to, to deteriorate? Why are we waiting for the next uh, Hurricane Sandy? In his case, where obviously would be very greatly on his mind. Um, one of the things that he said that really resonated with me was, quote, no matter what happens in Washington, I am really confident that the U.S. will deliver on its Paris commitment 
end quote. And he was speaking specifically to the commitment that many U.S. cities are making, despite the idea that there won't be federal backing for um, initiatives to, to, to have clean water, to, to um, incite and incent um, energy efficiency and so forth. His, his thesis and the thesis of the people there was that cities and communities are going to take action despite um, any populism that suggests that we shouldn't pay for these things. So what was the outcome of this? Was there a plan, uh, some other call to action that's coming out of this? You know, there wasn't really a specific call to action. The, 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 the main intent of this particular event, I believe, is, is really to get women active, right? So there were several um, community sorts of uh, 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 rabble rousers, if you will, there. Um, there was, uh, see, I'm trying to remember her name, Jess Rigetto, Jess Morales Rigetto. Um, and you probably don't know her name, but you might, um, what she, the reason she was brought in to speak is she has, was instrumental in organizing some of the protests against the Trump administration's, um, administration ban. Um, she got on social media and helped organize many of the, um, very civilian, um, non, uh, non, you know, career activist sorts in, in different communities around the, um, the country that, that, that stood up for this and got, got to airports and, and protested against what was going on in, in just, just the most bizarre places, you know, cool. she would figure out which airports. Um, but, but also I, I just want one other note I'd like to make is, is there was, um, a very high profile corporate leader there, um, that has committed to actually come on board and said, yes, we need to do this. Um, and that was, um, the CSO of L'Oreal. Um, and I spoke with her, um, I will be actually reporting more, more deeply on what she said, um, next week in, in a story, um, or in an upcoming story. I don't know when you'll publish it, but, um, they're, they are really trying to rally the corporate commitment as well. It's not just, you know, women in positions of power, it's women of every per persuasion and every diverse, you know, every ethnicity that they're trying to get involved. So what would you think uh, the implications are for companies here? Is, uh, is there some special role that you see coming out of this that companies should be playing in, in mobilizing or engaging women on climate change? So one of the things, uh, there were a couple of other people there as well. Johnson & Johnson was represented, in, as was Suez. And, and their point was for, the, for corporate leaders to be aware of what was happening in their communities and to help um, encourage uh, women to, to, to discuss what they're, what, what they saw to be open about what was going on around them. Um, and, and they felt like also this offer, this offered an opportunity for people within their, their corporate environments to step up, to be different sorts of leaders, to be different sorts of team players. And, you know, so they were very open to the idea that, um, that allowing women to be part of this dialogue was just natural. Um, like I said before, women and, and, and the more figures are coming out um, that women are disproportionately affected when something happens, when when there's a natural disaster, um, a flood in a low lying region in, in, in an emerging nation. Often women and children are the people that are affected the most and therefore they should be speaking up and, and really not necessarily like in any kind of. I mean, certainly you could think of it in a negative way, like, oh, they have to speak out and, you know, against the, the, the other side. Really, um, this is to be part of the dialogue, to help shape the solutions and so forth, things that maybe not haven't been thought of um, in different, in the same way um, by, by the men that typically lead in it at this level in this, in the city. Um, I forget what the figure was, but when, when we, they first got involved with this, there was only a handful of mayors involved and now there's more than, I think there's a close to two dozen. So, um, you know, I think it's uh, really important for corporate leaders to look at this. Like, like I said, L'Oreal, um, felt like, and their Anne Hidalgo of Paris has, has really been instrumental in helping get this together. And, and therefore L'Oreal, um, French company as well, um, is very interested. And that's kind of why they got interested, but they see it as an opportunity to develop their women at all levels of the organization. The attendees at the event also got a great update on the beyond coal campaign that the Sierra club has been, uh, working on. And, um, Marianne Hitt was there to, to talk about why, even though she's from West Virginia, this was so important to her. Since 2010, we have secured the retirement of almost half of the coal-fired power plants in the United States.
And we have been instrumental in ushering in the clean energy wind and solar revolution. And you may hear on the news that it's competition from other energy sources that is driving this shift. And that is part of the story. But the other part of the story is a remarkable, incredibly sophisticated grassroots network, a grassroots network that is active everywhere decisions are being made about how we make electricity in America, which is not Washington, D.C., though you may think it is, but in fact, it's in cities and it's in states. It's venues like utility commissions, state legislatures, city councils. And in that grassroots network, many of the leaders are women. Because it's women, it's incredible, it's incredible work. Because it is women who are often on the front lines of family emergencies that are tied to coal pollution, like a child who is struck down with an asthma attack, or water that is polluted with mercury and arsenic and lead coming out of the tap. It is women like Kim Wasserman, who is a Chicago mother of a child with asthma, who successfully led a campaign to retire a coal plant in her neighborhood that was so old, Thomas Edison had signed the guest book. It's women like Kathleen Sebelius, who's the former Secretary of Health and Human Services and was the governor of Kansas, where she denied permission for new coal plants to be built in her state because she knew it was the wrong direction for our country's energy future. And uh, it's people like Judy Bonds, one of my mentors from the West Virginia coal fields, who asked the simple question, if coal is so good for Appalachia, why are we so poor? If this network keeps pushing as hard as it can over the next four years, it alone can get us 60% of the way towards meeting the Paris Climate Agreement and save thousands of lives in the process. The woman spearheading the event really is the Paris mayor, Anne Hidalgo, who is very passionate, to say the least, about why gender equality and action on climate change are very linked. Here's what Mayor Hidalgo had to say. As the first woman lead to lead C40, I decide to develop a global initiative designed for young women. Women are more than half of humanity, and the United States nation sorry, has shown that, especially in poor countries, women are more vulnerable to climate change disasters, thank you to the deputy of United Nations. However, let's be very clear about it and sorry about this. Gentlemen, women are also the strongest when it comes to collectively changing the world. That is why we need to promote their rights and allow them to benefit from the best possible education. Education is the key. Our Women for Climate initiative will therefore advance the participation of women in the fight against climate change. It will support and empower our girls because they are our future leaders and I want them to be better than us. The challenges our societies are facing while tackling climate change are enormous. And I'm convinced that we will need to show courage, creativity, and solidarity. But above all, we will need the energy of women, sustainable energy. C40 is the right organization 
to launch this initiative because we are breaking the glass ceiling at the local level. Have a look. In 2014, there were just four women mayor in C40 cities. In 2017, we are now 15 mayors. Our progress, the mayor of Durban, the mayor of Capeton, all the mayor from Caracas. As women, we have always needed to work 10, ten times harder than men. And as soon as we get our place, we have 10 times less the right to fail. Sexism is not a myth. It is a daily reality for a lot of women. The aim of our initiative is to shape the future by concretely empowering our girls right now. Sharing the knowledge of mentors and business partners of this initiative will be a key element of our success. Well, it sounds like a really interesting event, Heather. Uh, thanks for uh, going and thanks for queuing it up and telling us all about it. Uh, Heather Clancy, Green Biz Senior Writer and Interim Managing Editor. I can't wait to meet more of these women. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. As usual, go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more about the organization's stories, events, and other things we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to my co-hosts, Lauren Hepler, and our podcast director, Saraya Melkonian. You can send us email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.